we are going to be continuing in, uh, finishing up a conversation from last week on the person and work of Jesus, uh, especially focusing on violence of the cross, which you had in your packets last week, um, but also discussing uh, dimensions of the resurrection. What did, what actually, not just the death of Jesus, what did it do for us in, for sake of sin, but also uh, in, in bigger ways, what does the resurrection imply? What does the resurrection mean? And then we're going to switch gears. Um, our topic for this, our main topic for this week, uh, or the new one is the Holy Spirit and Christian life. And we will talk about that this week, uh, concluding our conversations next week. And then in two weeks, Matt Skolnick will be standing here uh, and discussing uh, all sorts of things about the, the new community that the Holy Spirit creates, and then sacraments and proclamation in the church. So he'll be with you for the whole month of March talking all about um, those, those things. So before we jump in, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, another opportunity to gather. Uh, although our numbers are few this morning, our, our prayers are, are with those who could not be here, with Pastor Dave and Nancy who are in Egypt, for uh, those who are in Florida on vacation, those who are ill at home, or those who are just running late. We pray uh, for all of them. We pray also, Lord, that your spirit would be with us this day as we Dig into these big topics to understand more about all the ways that you love us, how your Holy Spirit is with us, and how your Son's death and resurrection changed everything. Be with us this day, Almighty God. Amen. Okay, so at the very top of the page, those are just the principles, the main principles from atonement that were a carryover from last week. If you were here last week, you saw those. So uh, the question, um, the question that we started with last week is, what did Jesus's death really do for us? And um, so we talked all about atonement, right? And atonement at one meant, right? It is the state of being back at peace with God, right? We have failed God in some way. How do we understand Jesus's intervention into the relationship between God and humanity? How do we understand how God came into that? And we grappled with all those questions, and Pastor Ben laid out for us all those different models of atonement. But then we've got to even ask a more fundamental question here of, did Jesus have to die in order for us to be saved? Because in Jesus' ministry, right, if sin is the only thing that Jesus' death took care of, right, if that's the only thing, um, why did he have to really die? Because even in his conversations with people throughout his ministry, Jesus said, your faith has healed you, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Well, your sins are forgiven, well, what I thought, well, that's before the, the crucifixion. How can he be saying your sins are forgiven? That's, that's a bit of what we're going to start this conversation off with. Um, and the, the one word that I think helps us to understand this is accommodation. And we've talked about that word before, but just a quick refresher. Accommodation is, this, is the um, what we have to do when we talk to children and they ask us big questions and we can't really give them the whole answer because it would take far too long for them to understand all the little pieces that go into it, right? So we give them a generic answer. Maybe we give them a half lie because we can't actually explain this whole thing, right? That is accommodation within humanity, but accommodation is also in the theology is the sense that God takes on human language, right? Because God and God's self does not speak human language. We would assume, we don't really know, but uh, it's a human thing, right? God doesn't speak English with, you know, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit aren't speaking English, right? There's something non-worldly, non-human about God, right? Other, Otherworldly. And so, um, 
when God seeks to communicate and reveal God's self to us, he has to, just by the very nature of communication, accommodate. I can't use my language with you. You don't understand my language. I need to use your language, and that's accommodation. And so, as uh, Pastor Ben talked about last week with um, the Jewish understanding of sacrifice, that someone had, or something had to die in order for my sins to be cleansed um, and forgiven. Is Jesus' death somewhat of an accommodation? And I'm not saying that's the entirety of it. I'm saying is that part of it? Because in the Jewish understanding of sin and forgiveness, someone or something had to die. So did Jesus come into the scene and say, I guess it's going to be me. You, this makes sense for you. This is the language you speak. And for me to speak into your world, I have to die. Is that part of it? Again, not saying that's the whole. But we struggle making sense of the death of Jesus. And especially, um, we, we struggle because it is a very violent act that we have domesticated. Right? Does anyone have a, a, a cross on them right now? Nobody? Okay. Some, right? You, but you often see folks wearing crosses around their necks. Um, what, what would you think if you saw somebody with a gun around their neck or an electric chair around their neck or a dagger? Right? You'd be like, well, that is kind of weird. We have domesticated the cross and removed the sense of violence from the cross um, because it's it's un, a little bit uncomfortable, right? We have golden crosses, but the cross was again it was an orch, instrument of execution and of torture. So we have to come back to the violence of the cross and understanding that um, the Passion of the Christ came out what fifteen-ish years ago. Did anyone see the film? Um, it was kind of jarring, right? And it was sometimes you had to kind of look away because it's a little too gory. Um, that's the, dis- that's, I think that's an extreme example. I'm not saying, I'm not lifting up the passion of the crisis, the film, but I'm saying our, uh, our lack of comfort with that film means that we have a disconnect from the violence of the cross. So, uh, in hiding the violence of the cross that stands at this cent- the center of the gospel drama, what we really do is we turn this, this message of God's love the costly love, we turn it almost into a fairy tale, a symbol of domination or some other distortion of its true meaning. We acknowledge the violence of the cross, but maybe, but if we do, we place the blame on someone else, some despicable group, often blaming the Jews, or we blame God, right? We can't be at fault. It's, it's the Jews, which we're not, so we can blame them, right? Or it's, it's God, which we're not God, so we can blame God. And that's those, those theories of atonement that say God sent Jesus to, and, and that substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, in some ways blames God the Father for Jesus' death. We don't like to take the, the fault, the blame upon ourselves. But when Jesus proclaims, embodies, and enacts the reign of God in a world built on violence, uh, it's not an arbitrary doctrine, but it's the most profound truth that Jesus must suffer. He has to suffer. Uh, That is, the boundless love of of God must collide with a world and where where the way of domination and manipulation might prevail elsewhere, violence plants the seeds of counterviolence. I'm reading here from the first page. Of provoking responses of retaliation and revenge. So God can't come in strong-arming his way, you know, if he's trying to speak into and, and change the dynamics of the world and understanding of sin, he can't come in forcefully. He, but instead, Jesus speaks subversively and says, you want a king. You want a military leader. That's what they expected the Messiah to be. Instead of that, Jesus comes in and speaks a different word. And by the violence of the cross that Jesus allows himself to be subjected to, Jesus says, violence is not 
the ultimate answer. This is not the right way to do it, but this is what you're doing to me, even to me. So it was divine necessity. Coming back to, did it have to happen that Jesus died? It was divine necessity, the necessity of God's free, gracious, non-coercive, right? Didn't force love upon the world. That was the necessity that the love of God should be fully expressed in all its vulnerability in Jesus. But that was the divine necessity. Jesus had to come vulnerably as a human and subject himself to what it meant to be a human. But it was the sinful human necessity, the necessity engraved in a violent world, that this one who mediated God's forgiveness and and brought the, the reign of God would be the target of violence. So God's plans and our plans uh, clashed. And Jesus died because of our sinful nature. Not just because Jesus had to speak into our life and, and, and in his death cleanse us of sin. No, no. Even stepping back before that, Jesus had to die because we, in our sinful nature, said his message is, can't be right. That love, that justice, that peace and forgiveness, that all that stuff that he's telling people, that can't be right. We can't accept that because that goes against the very foundation of who we are. We are sinful. And all that he is saying is, you, you need to go this way. And we're saying, no, no, this is the way we like to go. And in that clash, a war, as it says here, a world enslaved to the gods of violence must get rid of of Jesus. So I'm going to zoom through these because we do have a lot to cover today. But number one here at the very bottom of that first page, Christ died for us in order to expose our world of violence for what it is, a world that is in deadly bondage to sin and violence and that stands under God's judgment. So it's not, again, it's not just about making God happy, God the Father, and atonement. There's more going on here. It's about revealing just how sinful we are, right? And just how much we love to engage in violence as the answer. But we just killed God's son. That can't be the right answer, can it? Number two, Christ died for us in order to reveal and mediate God's free gift of love and forgiveness that breaks this unending cycle of hatred of hatred for hatred and violence for violence. Let me read that again because I didn't understand that. Christ died for us in order to reveal and mediate God's free gift of love and forgiveness that breaks the unending cycle of Hatred for hatred and violence for violence. So, um, essentially, humanity was acting violently towards God. In our language, in our understanding of how we should respond, we should re- God should have responded with violence, right? That's the, uh, that's the age-old understanding of our relationship with God. You do something wrong, you expect punishment, and uh, Job's friends, all of Job's friends, right? He's, he's obviously being punished, right? He doesn't know about the strange bet in heaven, but he's being punished. And so his friends say, oh, he must have done something wrong to offend God. And so God is paying you back. But the cross is really speaking in a different word. Violence is not the answer to violence. Hatred is not the answer to hatred. The cross is the answer And then number three, Christ died for us in order to open in the midst of a violent world a new future of reconciliation, peace, for a new humanity and a new creation. So again, in this this path of saying no more violence for violence, no more hatred for hatred, there is this, it's not a static thing. It's, it's a, there's momentum here. There's this movement towards reconciliation. The cross 
didn't just do something. The cross is continuing to do something. The cross moves us towards hope for a future where all will be reconciled. Sinners and saints and abusers and abused, everyone across the board, there is hope for reconciliation. 3A here, the cross of Christ is God's free gift of hope beyond hope. And this is a weird paradoxical claim that hope can be born out of suffering and death, that the crucified Lord is the basis of a hope in the completion of God's purposes. Yet seen in the light of the resurrection, the history of Jesus that comes to its climax in the crucifixion is the gift and the promise of victory of the nonviolent love of God. Nonviolent, that's what the cross is for Jesus who accepts the violence that sinful humanity seeks to impose. He could have called up all the angel armies, right? That verse um, where he called it, could have, could have called all the angels of heaven. But he didn't. Why? Because Jesus chose nonviolence. So the good news of the message of the cross that becomes clear in God's resurrection of the crucified is letter B here. God has not undergone the cross in order to eternalize it, deprive of us hope, of hope. But on the contrary, God has assumed it because God means to put an end to all the crosses of history, all the violence, all the, the pain that we inflict upon each other. The cross is there to say, no, that's not the answer. And that's not what's going to happen here and forever. The cross is there to put an end to violence and suffering and death. And then let her see here, whenever the message of the cross of Christ is rightly preached and heard with repentance, whenever people of faith gather at the, ta the Lord's table to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ and its promise of new creation, whenever forgiveness is offered to others in the name of Christ and received in the power of the Spirit, the deadly circle of violence and counterviolence, violence and counterviolence, that cycle is broken. And the rule of violence begins to yield to a new world of solidarity, compassion, peace. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ inscribes deeply into human history the truth that God's compassion is greater than the murderous passions of our world, that God's glory can and does shine even in the deepest night of human savagery, that God's forgiving love is greater than our often paralyzing awareness of our sin and guilt, and that God's way of life is greater than our way. Of death. Jerry's got a question. The word is guilt? Because that's what we always were taught. You know, we felt guilty uh, because we'd done something wrong and yeah. guilt and so forth. Uh, my wife, that's one thing I'll give her credit for. She changed that idea in my thinking. Yeah. So the, the conversation about our guilt and how Jesus had to die to rid us of the guilt, is that where you're headed? People didn't get that. I mean, where I grew up, they, that, was, uh, that was what you were, it, what people thought. Yeah. If you did something wrong, you felt guilty, and, and you're, that's it. Sure. Um, so you're talking about individual guilt confession and a human level. Yeah. I, yeah. So I think it's, there is something to be said about, we have to, we have to have a sense of guilt and we have to recognize that there is this violence, this hatred, this, this sinful nature within us. And we have to name it through confession of sin. That's why for me, uh, the confession of sin is among the most powerful parts of our service every week because it really makes me remember, I am a sinner, right? Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the most ancient prayers that in that recognition, we start to, in that recognition of our own sinfulness, we start to recognize the fullness of what God has done in Jesus, 
Yes, it's about forgiving us from sin. That's part of it. But the other part of it is saying this violent aspect of ourselves is not right. It's not just sin. It's, 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 we need another word. This violence tendency of violence and violence and violence, hatred and hatred and hatred. The cross says, no, that's not where we should be going. Uh, but you said that, the, that, that, that confession makes you much better. You don't oh, no. Well, I'm not saying it makes me feel better. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to have this momentary, man, I'm a crappy sinner. You're supposed to have that momentary like, oh, I did it again. I can't believe I'm so bad. Like, yeah, right? But then there's the assurance, right? We don't let you sit and wallow for too long. You know, no sackcloth and ashes. and You're, you're not sitting in that for too long. It, the assurance of pardon comes quickly thereafter, where we are reminded, right? As it just says here, where was this? That... Um, God's forgiving love is, is greater than our often paralyzing awareness of our sin and guilt. God's way of life is greater than our way of death. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. There you go. Michael, sure. if, you know, Jesus said there's no, no greater than to give your life for your friend. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a contrast between the cross and the um, Noah and the ark, the great flood story? There, the, the wrath of God, so to speak, against the judgment of man for that no one was really, and the world was destroyed. And then the promise was, I'll never destroy you again. And then Jesus says, no greater and to give your life, and then, then he became. One was a judgment against creation and man. The other was a, a love and forgiveness yeah. based on a promise and based on a teaching. It was, it was foretold us. I'll never destroy the world again. There's the rainbow. Yeah. So I, I think there's a contrast there, and I think when you, for me at least, when I compare those two in my mind, I start to see the love and the lack of violence. On God's part. Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around the, the, and, and juxtapose those two, the cross with the ark. Uh, I think I have to chew on that more because I, I initially I want to, I'll tell you initially, I'm just being honest and open here, that I want to reject that comparison because there is violence in the ark and the whole story of Noah that well, that's what I'm saying. It was all violence and it was all against yeah. man by God. Right. And so my, my gut reaction is, well, we can't by comparing those, we can't take the next step, which a lot of people would do and say the old Testament God is all about violence and the new Testament God is all about nonviolence because that a lot of people think that even in the church, a lot of people say, I don't really read the old Testament because I don't like, God in the Old Testament. That's a violent God. That's a mean God. I need Jesus. But what we, if we've talked about in here, Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, right? So that means that in the pre-Jesus, pre-incarnation, our understanding of God was less than. We understood less of who God was. And so this is a much larger conversation that we can have this morning. But ultimately, if the nonviolent Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is, I have to wonder if we mischaracterize the God of the Hebrew Scriptures as being a violent God. So, Sue, something to add? I think the point I get from Noah's story is that he listened to God, the others did not. And I think that's the whole point of the whole hmm. New Testament. Is if you're listening to God, you're you're saved. I mean, you're rescued, whatever. And we don't listen. We're not at one with God and God's yeah. word. Yeah. Things happen. Sure. Not paying attention. There is some sense that we have to respond.
But I do get, and I'd have to revisit the Noah story, but I, I think God only spoke to Noah. I don't think God gave an opportunity to the rest of humanity in the same way God gave that opportunity to Noah. Maybe I'll have to revisit the story. Now you got me all curious. Now I want to run home and, and go read it. But alas, we've got uh, a lot more to cover this morning. Um, do you have a handout, Edith? There they are. So bottom of page two, we unfortunately have to zoom through this, although there's a lot here. I encourage you to read this because this is some beautiful, challenging, eye-opening stuff here about the resurrection because we need to move on to the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to give short shrift to the Holy Spirit. Um, bottom of two, the Christian faith, this is again from Migliori, of course, the Christian faith stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. So what is resurrection? Broadly, resurrection comes to us from, right? It wasn't Jesus who thought up resurrection, right? This is an ancient Jewish idea of resurrection. And again, Jesus speaks into our world. And is it perhaps a bit of accommodation? Maybe, I don't know probably spelling this right, something like that. Probably not spelling it right. But Jesus speaks in our world using our own thoughts, our own culture. And, um, you know, there are cultures where the resurrection is not a thing. Would Jesus, Jesus's message have taken hold and, and would Jesus have used the understanding of resurrection? I don't know. But Jesus came at that time. Jesus came to those people because they were ripe for his arrival. Um, they had this idea of uh, someone had to die in order to, for God to be appeased, right? They had that so God, Jesus could, knowing the re response to him would be violence, he could come. And then uh, in the same way, prophesying and looking forward to uh, the resurrection, and then of course the resurrection came, um, there is this sense that this was already foretold, right? The Jewish expectation of resurrection was strong, except for the Sadducees. You see that inner, inner uh, Jewish dialogue that the Pharisees were believed in resurrection. The Sadducees were not, right? So they try to corner Jesus and talk about it. Um, but the idea is that everyone will be resurrected at the end, right? So everyone will die. And they'll sit and they'll wait and they'll wait and they'll wait and they'll wait. And then everyone will come back at the resurrection. That's the idea of resurrection. In the, in the early Jewish apocalyptic hope, that is what resurrection is. Everyone will be raised to, at the same time. So this instance of resurrection of Jesus happens early, right? So it is an example of what we all can hope for but a lot earlier than we thought it would happen. And life, human life, day-to-day -day life goes back to normal, but we now have this huge example of what resurrection will look like. And Jesus's life, death, and resurrection becomes the model for how we will live and die and be resurrected all together at once. Yeah? Okay, top of page three. So there are multiple interpretations and uh, multidimensional interpretation is really required. How do we understand there was, there was this person, Jesus, who died and came back to life? Well, Lazarus came back to life, but what happened to Lazarus in the end? He still died at some point. Right? I don't, I've never met Lazarus, 2,000 plus years old. I haven't met him. I assume he's dead. We don't have that story, but I, I, I take it on, I, I think that's probably where it ended up. Jesus didn't go back into the grave, never went into the grave. Instead, Jesus ascended and is in heaven now with God the Father. So what does that mean? Nobody else has, has come back to life and had this experience but Jesus. So because this is something beyond explication, mysterious beyond words, what do we do? We can't just say, 
oh, he's alive and he'll come back. Like, we, we have to start to, as we zoom in, we see all these colors coming out and we realize, oh, there's all this stuff going on. And there are at least six dimensions of interpreting Jesus is risen. There's a theological interpretation, Christological, pneumatological, ecclesial, political, and cosmic. We're going to run through these. Um, But you have some notes there for all of them. Again, this is all in Migliori. You've got scriptures there as well. So if you want to follow up on them, there they are. But theological, right? Referring to God. How is God involved in the resurrection of Jesus? It's an act of God, first and foremost, right? We can't imagine... We cannot imagine that Jesus was dead and Jesus, by Jesus' own power, was like, whoop, okay, I'm done being dead, now I'm awake. That's not it. it. We have to, with a firm foundation of the Trinity, we have to understand that God the Father and God the Spirit, Holy Spirit, were also intimately involved in bringing Jesus back to life, to new life, right? And so there's this theological dimension um, just as Jesus died for us, he was raised for us. A world of sin, violence, and death rendered its verdict on him, but God has rendered a contrary verdict, reversing and canceling the verdict on, on the world of the world. Isn't that a beautiful image, right? The world said, Jesus, you're condemned to die, and then he died. And God said, mm, that was wrong, and reverse his course. But in, in doing so, it doesn't just bring back and restore things to how they were, but he totally changes the equation. There's a Christological element, of course, right? Just referring to what's going on with Jesus. Because the risen Christ is none other than the one who, for our salvation, assumed flesh, lived among us, and was obedient to death on the cross. So that, of course, that goes into understanding the resurrection. There's a pneumatological element as well, uh, because everything that the cross does and speaks into our lives, we understand through the Spirit, right? The Spirit is in us. The Spirit is the one inspiring our hearts, drawing us closer to each other, drawing us closer to God and faith. So how is the Spirit at work in the resurrection? The Spirit is with God the Father, the one who brings Jesus back to life in the resurrection, but also then in our responding to that. Let her be there. The cross and resurrection of Christ manifest this Trinitarian plenitude, isn't that a fun phrase, of God's self-giving love for the world. The Father's giving is boundless. The Son's giving is glorious, and the Spirit's giving again is life-transforming. By the Spirit of the living Christ, new life to his disciples. By the Spirit, the living Christ brings new life to his disciples and gives them a mission. And they are then sent forth with the power of the Spirit, right? So um, Pentecost is the other side of the coin for the resurrection, right? It has to, it just follows. Now, if Jesus didn't die and wasn't resurrected, would we have Pentecost? No, right? It, 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 ha- it has to follow. This is a chain of events that has to follow. Jesus had to ascend, but said, I'm sending you power from on high, Wait, wait in Jerusalem. Wait. So then there's an ecclesial dimension. This is all about the church. What is the church? Um, how is the church involved in the resurrection? Uh, we understand that it's not just a fact that Jesus was resurrected. It's something we have to accept on faith. Now, you can say, well, I believe it is a fact, but you believe it, right? Um, There's something that has to be said for, like in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, I believe, I take this on faith. And that means that uh, it is not just head knowledge, but it's heart knowledge. It has to make that transition. We have to respond in faith to the death and resurrection of Jesus, Um, and in doing so, uh, we, we recognize it's not an isolated experience. This is something someone else has done. And I'm preaching pretty much all about this. Dan can attest. You heard the sermon um, in the 8 a.m. service. This is, our faith is never an isolated experience. Paul says, 
you know, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Someone had to come. Someone had to be there. It's not coming to faith in the resurrection of Jesus and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You need people. You need community. So the power of the resurrected Jesus creates community. And the church is where Jesus is met, where bodily historical graces and reconciliation are shown. And the community of faith is where the living Christ is encountered, acknowledged, confessed, and obeyed. And I love this quote from uh, Rowan Williams, the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, I do believe. Uh, the church still meets Jesus as the other, a stranger. It never absorbs him into itself so that he ceases to be its lover and its judge. We could talk about that for the entire class because that's a great quote. Um, yes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, two, three. Another way you could phrase this, these are the theology terms that we quickly simplify this. The theology broadly is the study of God. Christology, the study of Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit. Um, so the pneumatological are uh, anything refer, um, having to do with the Spirit. Does it? Number five, political. Let's flip the page over. Um, the resurrection is is political dynamite. So says N.T. Wright. When you say Christ is risen, Christ is Lord, that's really saying all these claims of Caesar, that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is the Son of God, um, all those claims are not true. So there is this very political element to um, Jesus' resurrection because he really says, right, humanity and with the political uh, religious authorities of the day, convicted Jesus. And what did God do? God said, nope, I'm going to undo that conviction, and he, now he's resurrected. There's this sense of an undoing of the earthly powers. So the proclamation of that Christ is risen constitutes a challenge to the powers of the world. If Christ the crucified is the risen Lord of the world, Caesar is not. Letter C, John Sobrino understands the resurrection message as proclaiming the triumph of God over all injustice and violence. We talked about this already. Uh, following the crucified and risen Jesus entails struggle and conflict. While not a call to arms, this Easter message is a call to resistance, permanent resistance to all injustice and to violence. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus are inseparable. They express God's solidarity with victims and the efficacy of God's boundless love. But this whole time, we've all been talking about things on an earthly scale. We have to also zoom out, as best we can, to a cosmic scale. Did Jesus' death and resurrection have an effect on the cosmic scale? Yes, we would say that it does. That this is that if we if we before said all of creation has fallen, all of creation is broken, something had to come and fix all of creation, and that was the resurrection, restoring back or or calling the entirety of creation back to reconciliation. Um, right? Romans talks about uh, how the whole earth is groaning, waiting or release from bondage to death. So Jesus' death and resurrection is that first fruits, which we've talked about, inaugurating the kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom for all of creation. So uh, letter C there, uh, to believe in the resurrection of Christ is to believe God is and will be triumphant, not only the over-violent death that reigns in our human history, but also is and will be triumphant over the tragic death to which all life is subject. All life. Okay. I'm trying to budget time here. I have thrown a lot at you. I'm going to pause and see if you have any questions. Do we have any thoughts? This is a lot to digest. Do you have the... 
Can you remind me your name again? I'm Derek. Derek, that's yeah. right. Oh. Derek. Morning, so, Derek. Uh, my question is, uh, you kind of mentioned how, uh, I think it was in the theological perspective, and kind of when you're speaking of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God, that uh, there's kind of the implication that uh, God, uh, Jesus died, and then God said, well, this was a mistake, or this is not what he wanted, or um, for some reason he felt Jesus should come back. Is there, uh, so with that, I, the question I wanted to ask was, God being uh, omnipotent, all-knowing being, is there a capability for God to be able to learn and to change? <laughs> is there, oh, wow. That was a, is there, is there, um, there are theologies that would strictly say God does not change, right? God is unchangeable, unchanging. Um, but that uh, particularly refers to the core of who God is, how God acts. Um, but there is a, a grow, well, there has been throughout uh, the theological tradition, and there's a growing um, number of theologians who would say, that God can, God in Jesus did suffer, and so if Jesus suffered, God suffered, right? The whole of the triune God suffered, and that God can change, not again in base ways, but in, uh, in certain ways. And even throughout Scripture, you see, um, you know, can God change God's mind? Uh, Abraham, right? Uh, he, God was set to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham had a conversation. Well, would you, if it were a hundred? No, if it, right? So there's. I don't want to say God does not change. Period. End of story. I think there's something more to be said. And in Jesus, absolutely, um, God learns. Right? In Luke, uh, Luke four, or Luke two, Luke two. Um, it says that Jesus grew and uh, in knowledge and stature, right? So Jesus is God. And so there is this sense of growth and change there. But that's a great conversation for another day, perhaps. But Dan, let's keep going. In this book that we're using, Migliori, and Michael, you can correct me because I haven't read this part of it for a while. He says that God is love and God is free to love the way God wants to love. In other words, he's never going to do anything that isn't love, and he's going to express it the way and when he wants. And I, w I would say to you, you know, if you're making Kool-Aid, does it matter if you put the water in the pitcher first or the Kool-Aid in the pitcher <laughs> first? It's going to come out Kool-Aid, right? Now, I, we use the new ones, not sweet. So, so to me, God is a God of principle, God is a, a God of patterns. God will always use the same principle. He'll show you patterns, but the patterns may not always be the same. Kool-Aid may mm -hmm. go in first or the water may mm -hmm. go in. But you can always relate that pattern back to God. Mm. So, yeah. so, so to me, that, that, that's kind of how I, how I would answer your question. You can keep it. I'll let you. Great. We've got about 10 minutes to move on and start some conversations about the Holy Spirit. I am going to give you a wee bit of homework. Bottom of page four. Um, if you look in, I'll start this off to say, if you look in the Apostles' Creed, you look in the Nicene Creed, you know, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about that Jesus section is about this big, God the Father section, Holy Spirit section, teeny tiny, Right? There's a lot more story to talk about with Jesus. A lot of things we've got to get right. Um, what I love so much about our own denomination's brief statement of faith is that it seeks to give uh, voice to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and still maintains that beautiful story of Jesus in the middle and even expands it beyond Apostles and Nicene Creed. But I wanted to draw your attention to this section uh, of the brief statement of faith. It's about... 24 lines. Um, you could probably read it between this class and the next service. Uh, what I ask you to do is circle everything in there that the Holy Spirit does. What does the Holy Spirit do? So um, 
I wish we could talk more about that, but we're going we're gonna, to uh, go on to top of five. So that's your homework for the week. You really could finish it probably in about 10 minutes. You can uh, uh, start, start on that homework. Top of page five. So we're transitioning to talking about the third person of, of the Godhead. And uh, when we talk about the, the Holy Spirit, first people are, are especially in non-Pentecostal people, uh, in the church are saying, oh, well, Holy Spirit, well, I mean, yeah, Holy Spirit's out there, but we don't really talk about the Holy Spirit all too much. Let's focus on Jesus. Um, and there is this strange neglect of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And in modern times, we're seeking to recover a strong doctrine. It's not like we've forgotten it for 2,000 years, but culture shifts, culture changes, uh, and we get certain, we, we get obsessed with certain things and we forget about others, right? We're strange beasts. Things change. So the institution of the church has always looked on the experience of an appeal to the spirit as potentially subversive and in need of control because the spirit is uh, uh, one of my favorite songs, which if we had more time, I would time, I would sing it today. And I may still, I don't know. Um, A lone wild bird. Do we know that song, that beautiful hymn Um, that didn't make it to glory to God, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, if I could choose one to put into glory to God, it would be that one. So um, we, the, the Spirit is a lot harder to define. We're, we're good with God the Father, right? We, we get enough of God. You know, God has been God since time, before time began. God is creator. And then God sends, G, God the Father sends Jesus. But what's this Holy Spirit business? Beyond Pentecost, what do we really know? Well, speaking in broad terms, um, we spoke about this maybe three or four months ago the, in, in our discussions, well, it's maybe two months ago, about Trinity. In the Jewish understanding of the Spirit, because you do see discussion of the Spirit throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, um, if you open up uh, a Christian Bible, sometimes that S, Spirit, is capitalized. and the Jewish Scriptures, it's probably not capitalized. Um, and that's a translation, translator's decision. But in the Jewish concept of the Spirit, the Spirit is an extension of God's self, right? Or the, the theological word is an emanation of God. That's the Spirit. Not a distinct being, but just part of God kind of reaching out into the world. Um, but in a more fully Christian Trinitarian understanding, the Spirit is a distinct person of God, just like Jesus is a distinct person. And by person, I just don't mean human. Jesus is a distinct person. God the Father is a distinct person. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person. Not just human, but there is personhood. There is personality. All those words go into describing and talking about the Spirit. And um, it partially because we don't have a lot of stories about the Spirit, but partially because this what we do know about the Spirit we kind of don't, we might not like, because the Spirit seems to do whatever the Spirit wants, and it doesn't, the Spirit uh, doesn't quite follow what we always expect. Um, and yet we have to return to um, an understanding of how the Spirit is at work in our world and in our lives, because of course, after the resurrection, Jesus is in heaven, Right? I know in my, uh, I'll give you a little more to the sermon. Um, when I was growing up at the Southern Baptist Church, I was, I was, it was suggested week after week, just as I am, uh, to ask Jesus into your heart, right? We don't use that language a lot in the Presbyterian Church, um, but in the Baptist Church, that's what we said, you know. You've got to ask Jesus into your heart, which now being a Presbyterian and knowing these things of theology, I'm like, well, that doesn't even make sense because Jesus is really in heaven. Jesus is still embodied flesh. So it would be as though I say, hey, Dan, jump in my heart. You can't do it. I mean, you're a surgeon, so actually maybe I should step away. Um, but um, uh, the idea of Jesus being in our heart is not quite right. But when we start talking about the spirit at work, 
The Spirit is that big connecting uh, person. I almost said force, and I'm trying not to say force or it when it refers to the Spirit, uh, when we refer to the Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is the connecting person between God and humanity now that Jesus has ascended. And so we talk about having the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, come into our lives, into our hearts, inspiring faith, all those things that you'll see in the bottom of page four in um, the brief statement of faith. We are going to, I'm going to actually put a pin in this conversation. We've got two more pages talking about a theology of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pick this up next week um, because I do want to sing this song today because I think it kind of gives a good overview of what um, we can expect when talking about the Holy Spirit. So the lone wild bird. And if we had copies of this hymnal, I um, I would have them in your hands, but uh, it's only two verses. So if you'll allow me to sing two verses here. those last words together. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. One more time. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Amen. I have just one more minute, so if you'll allow me to totally switch gears and switch hats. Uh, this is our new discipleship book for this Lent, right? The last few years, we've been engaging in all church reads, and if you are thinking, oh, not another book, um, if you are not a reader, this book is for you because it has lots of images that are, that some are strange, some really make you think, what is going on there? And then the prayers are only a few lines long. And these are not just simple prayers you can quickly say and throw away. You've got to really meditate on them. So rather than reading a lot and not thinking, not, maybe struggling to think about what's going on there, we're giving you a very short chunk to read. And if you are a reader, there are other things in here, right? About every seven days, there are practices um, this is talking about mindfulness in this chapter. So this is available starting today right on the other side of that wall. You can go talk to Steve Stocker and get your copy of the book. I'm going to consider that song our prayer and say amen. Thank you.